We're in the book of Zechariah. Now, as you remember, there are 12 minor prophets. The first nine minor prophets are what we call pre-exilic books. It's before they went into exile. Remember in those prophets, they were saying, repent, get your life right with God, or you're going to end up being taken away captive into Babylon, and your country is going to be destroyed. And, well, they didn't repent. They didn't listen to the prophets. They were. But God said, I will be faithful to you, and after 70 years, I'll bring you back into the land. And that's where we have now. The last three are the post-exilic prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are after they've returned back to the land, and there's a whole other message that God has to give to the people, thus also unto us. And so if you remember, in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave the word that they could go back to the promised land. After two years of being there, God gave the word, let's build the temple. I know you're in the middle of your own businesses and houses and farms, and I know it's a drought, it's a time of famine, uh, the king's taxes are huge, but we need to build the temple. We have to have the center place of worship. After two years of struggle, continual attacks, continual famine, continual uh, heavy taxes, the people of the land lied to the king of Persia saying, hey, as soon as these guys get the temple built, they're going to build the city, they're going to rebel against you. Look at their history. They're rebellious people. They looked at the history. They said, you're right. They ordered them to stop building the temple. The people were more than glad to let it go. They had a lot of stuff they wanted to do anyway. Fourteen years went by, and the prophets come and say, I never said stop. You need to get back to this. And that was the book of Haggai. Remember there we saw where he says, have you guys noticed you sow a lot, but you reap a little? Have you noticed you eat, but you're not satisfied? You drink, but you're still thirsty? You're not getting ahead. You're going farther in the red. Why? Because I have not only not put in my hand a blessing upon you, I'm putting my hand a curse upon you because you're not making me the priority, thus building the temple, my kingdom, the thing that I'm doing, you're not a part of it. As the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. All these other things aren't being added unto you because you're not right with me. Consider your ways. Calculate it out, God said, and see that putting me first would be the wise choice. Well, they did. They started building a temple. Matter of fact, four years later, they completed it in 516 B.C. But on that 14th year, in 520 B.C., now they've been in the land 18 years, they start rebuilding Um, the temple once again. And uh, during this time, God raised up two prophets by the name of Haggai and Zechariah who said, guys, we got to get back to work. They physically just went out and started doing it themselves. A few people started joining them. It wasn't enough. And finally, God touched the whole nation. They all got behind it. And within four years, that which seemed impossible was now accomplished. But notice over back in the book of Haggai with me, if you would. Notice there in chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month. So this is the year 520 B.C., the sixth month. It's not the same as our months. Uh, they, They had the lunar calendar with a little mixture of the Babylonian calendar way of doing things. And it comes out to around our September ish. So as in September, let's use that, let's just say September, not quite true, but September-ish, around 520 B.C., God said, time to get back to work. They did. But then, notice in chapter 2 of Haggai, verse 1, in the seventh month now, now in the, uh, the month of October, the very next month, God gave him another prophecy. 
But then notice down in verse 10 of Haggai chapter 2, it says on the 24th day of the ninth month. So now we're into December-ish. So September, October, God gave messages to Haggai, and then again in December. Now you say, what does that have to do with anything, Brian? Well, look at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. You'll discover in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. So in November, before the December of the final prophecy of Haggai, the Lord spoke through Zechariah, then he spoke again to Haggai. So your homework this week is to go back after we study the first six verses here this morning, after God gave that work in the ninth month, or in the eighth month, to go back and read the final prophecy, verses 10 through the end of the chapter, and, and put that in context of what the Lord had spoke uh, through Haggai. But right in the midst of Haggai's prophecies, God slides Zechariah in there to give this word in that eighth month, in the November-ish time, uh, of that second year of Darius, 520 B.C. The name Zechariah actually is a very common Hebrew name. It means the, that Yahweh remembers. The Lord remembers. In other words, he remembers the promises he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And although you're in this pagan land, God's going to remember you and bring you back into the land. And indeed he did. God remembered. He didn't forget about them, even though they were put into this foreign land for a season. There's actually about 27 different Zacharias mentioned uh, in the scriptures, depending on how you look at it. It might be 25, might even be 29, but I think 27 is a good number uh, of Zacharias mentioned in the scriptures. Jesus mentioned him in Matthew 23:35. Jesus talks about how Zechariah was killed. He says that uh, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. The, the altar set right outside the front doors of the temple. So between the altar where sacrifices were being given and the door of the temple, they had killed Zechariah, murdered him. As you'll discover, Zechariah was a very gentle guy. He, he really wasn't a hot and fiery prophet, as many of them were. But uh, his words were deeply piercing. And it cut him to the heart, and rather than repenting, they eventually killed, murdered Zechariah. But it tells us that through Haggai and Zechariah that God prospered the people of Israel. It reminds me of that verse in Second Chronicles 20.20. 20, it says, Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Well, when they believed the prophets and got back to the work of the temple, God began to prosper them uh, once again. The book of Zechariah is, is a heavy book. It's like Daniel and Ezekiel and, and Revelation. It has a lot of uh, imagery that's, that's very heavy. Nevertheless, it's the word of the Lord, uh, especially concerning end times. And so in this November time, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berkiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, and in verse 2, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Now when the Bible says that God is angry, you've got to understand in context what he is saying here. It's not like he's saying, man, you make me angry, you bunch of sinners. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm angry that you're missing out on what I have for your life. I get angry with my kids, and it's not because necessarily what they did was foolish or, or harmful. It's that this is not good for them to be that way. And if they continue to be selfish like that or mean like that or unwise like that, 
their life is going to be in turmoil, and I can see that, hey, even though you may only be 10 or 14, this is you, and this can be you at 20 or 30 or 40 as well, unless you change. You're, that those very characteristics are going to hurt your life, whether it's school, whether it's marriage, whether it's your finances. And so I'm angry, not at them so much, but for them, because they need to change, not because it's more comfortable for me if they all, or they're different, but that they would change, that they would be the person that God would have them to be. And the, so the Lord is, is angry because they are repeating the very life wrong choices that their fathers before them did. Notice there in verse 3, Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn now from your evil ways, from your evil deeds. But they did not hear nor heed me, says the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And your prophets, do they live forever? Yet surely my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they returned and said, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So look at what happened. What did the prophets say? They said, stop it, guys. Stop your evil ways. Stop your evil deeds. Don't do it anymore. God is going to have to punish you like he did all the other nations. As he vomited them out of the land, he's going to vomit you out of the land. In particular, every seventh year, they were to give this tithe, if you would, to the Lord. Every seventh year, they were to let the land go fallow and, and just rest for a, an entire year. And in the 490 years that they possessed the land, not once did they walk by faith and obey the Lord in that seventh year tithe. And God said, because you didn't give it, well, now I'm going to take it. Seven into 490 is 70. And so God said, those 70 years... I'm now uh, going to take it. But look at the heart of the Lord even in this. Look at Jeremiah 29, if you would. Turn over to Jeremiah 29. And notice there, starting in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord... After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So before they had yet even been punished and sent out of the promised land, God says, not only are you going to be sent out, it's going to happen, but you're going to, I'm going to bring you back. And notice in verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So God says, you know what, I was angry, but it's not because I have evil thoughts towards you. I have wonderful thoughts towards you to give you a future and a hope. And in that time, when your heart finally is broken and right with me and with your whole heart now, you're seeking me, you're going to find me and you're going to find those blessings that come from that right relationship with the Lord. 
But he says, look at your fathers. Your fathers didn't listen. And thus, that which I said was going to happen overtook them. Literally pursued them like a lion chasing a gazelle and grabbing the gazelle and eating it up. That's what happened to them. My very words overtook them and ate them up. Matter of fact, tonight as we look in Jeremiah, one little piece that we're going to see tonight is God said to Jeremiah, don't get married. And so when people ask you and say, hey, you're a young, good-looking guy, why, why aren't you married? Then Jeremiah can say, thus says the Lord. God said, if I were to get married, my wife is going to be raped by the Babylonians. <laughs> if I were to have kids, they were going to be killed by the Babylonians. So God said, don't get married, don't have kids, unless you suffer the grief of seeing them destroyed. Whoa. <laughs> That's a heavy message. But he said, what did your fathers do? We warned them. I warned them. The prophets told them over and over again until finally that word overtook them. And then finally, as the Babylonians come down, and sure enough, their wife is raped and their, their child is killed, and, and there they have a spear in their back and they're chained as they're marching off to Babylon. Guess what happened? They repented. <laughs> your fathers did return to me. And they said, Whoa, the word of the Lord is true. And God is exactly right. And everything he said would happen has happened. They repented. But it was a little too late. Because the calamity was there. And so as their wife is going that way and they're going this way, as they're walking by their dead child, as they leave the city gates, they, they're right with God. And so many of those fathers were going to see them in heaven. But the consequences of not repenting was absolutely horrendous. And now he's coming to these guys and saying, I'm going to say to you exactly what I said to your fathers before the 70 years. I'm saying it to you now after the 70 years. Return to me. Return back unto me. Now I've got to make a very important point here. Who is Zechariah prophesying to? He's prophesying to the good guys. When Cyrus gave the decree to all of the world, all Jews worldwide can now leave Babylon or leave Egypt or leave whatever part of the world they've been taken captive. You can now go back to the promised land. You can now go back to the holy land. You can go back to the land God given you. Go back now to Israel. Out of all the millions of Jews, do you know how many went? A mere 50,000. Even to this day, there's about three, four times more Jews in New York than there is in Israel. They didn't obey. They didn't go back. Now, you've got to realize, these 50,000 that went back, it's incredible they went back. I mean, it would be the same today as saying, all of you, leave America, and let's go build a city in Afghanistan. It would be an exact parallel. Israel at the time was full of a bunch of fractioning tribes that were fighting against one another. They hated the Jews. They didn't want them going there. They went back to Jerusalem. It would have been better had it just been a plain hillside, but it was a city destroyed. They had to clean up the mess before they could start building. They're leaving the modern society of the day and going into a very rural environment, probably living in tents for a season and farming instead of having their cushy job at the shoe stop back in Babylon. 
they made a choice that was hard on them. It was not a, it was not a choice of ease or, well, I'd be better off to go back there anyway. They were worse off for coming back. But yet they obeyed the word of the Lord. So really the people that Zechariah is talking to are the people that did obey to this point. They were back in the land, but God says, not good enough. Haggai began to prophesy in the sixth month. Back in September, okay, we repent, we see it, we're not getting ahead like this. We'll start building the temple. They did. And here now, a few months later, God comes on the scene and he says, you're back in the land, great, not good enough. You're building the temple again, great, but not good enough. I want you to return. Now listen to this. He says, unto me. I don't want you to return back to religion. There's so much uh, today within Christianity that you'll never find in the Bible. Okay, why in the world are people doing that, burning that candle, smoking that incense, and you know, wearing those kind of clothes and chanting these things? Like None of it's in the Bible. It's made up by man. You wouldn't have that religiousness by just reading the Bible. They've invented it. And then they said, God, come and live in it. And God's looking at it going, I don't want to live in that junk. But people often say, I'm back in church. He didn't say return back to church. Well, I'm living a more moral life. God didn't say return back to a more moral life. He said return unto me. God is not satisfied till you are living and walking in an intimate love relationship with him. Until for you to live as Christ, living and moving and having your being in him. He wants you to return back unto him and that intimate relationship with him. It's a story of an older couple. And you remember the old days when the cars always had the bench seats, you know? They didn't have the individual seats like they do today. They had the bench seats. This older couple is driving down the road and... and the lady began to notice all of these young couples and other, you know, where she's just sort of smashed right into the side of the boyfriend or the husband. Real close as they're driving down the road. And she said to her husband, Oh, do you remember when it was always like that with us? And we used to always sit so close like that because we were so in love. And he looked at her and said, it wasn't me who moved. <laughs> Still right behind the steering wheel where I've always been. It wasn't me who moved. And God is saying the same thing. I haven't moved. You know where I want you? I want you right here next to me. Now we've got to hear this. We've got to understand this and the way God is saying it. God is not folding his arms saying, where have you been, you crumb? You haven't been around much, you big sinner. What's your problem? That's not what God is saying. The emphasis is not on your sin. The emphasis is on God wanting you right here, right next to him. He doesn't say, I guess you might think you'd like to return, wouldn't you? Well, forget it. That's not what God is saying. The whole point of what God is saying is, return to me. I, you came back to the land, that's great. You're building the temple, that's great. But 
it's still me. You see, if you build this building, you've got a building. But if your heart's full of love for me and we're in this intimate love relationship, we're building a temple and it's going to be a place of worship. And once the building's built, you're going to be a worshiper. But if you're not nearing to me, you're going to have this building, you're just going to go right back to your life. God is saying, you're not making a building for me. (laughs) You're making a house of worship for us. And right now, it's just a building for me. And I don't need a building. But we do need a place of worship for us that you can return unto me and have that heart and that desire for that place of worship. I got an email recently from somebody. It's nobody in this church. I don't try to figure out who it is. But he writes this. I feel myself far from God. I feel far from my wife. I have left my first love for both. And it's been a long time coming. So it feels like it may take more than a moment to get back. I need his grace and his abling grace. I need his wisdom, the kind that James talks about, that from above. The cares of this life are choking me. I have no desire to worship but I have a great desire for comfort and ease and sin. I'm distracted. I'm not hearing much from the Lord myself. All of the above troubles me greatly. When I heard that last line, all this above troubles me greatly, my heart rejoiced. Because so often people in their backsliding can get to the place, as it says in Ephesians 4, they become pass-filling. They just give themselves over to the desires of their flesh. It says in 1 Timothy that those who live for the pleasures of their flesh, they're dead while they live. But I think this letter maybe expresses the heart of a number of people today. I know in part I I saw myself in there. In Mark it says this, that there's some weeds that can come and start choking out that plant. What are those weeds? The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in. And in Luke he adds, the riches and the pleasures of this life. If you notice, the older you get, the harder it is to keep yourself in the love of God. (laughs) The older you get, that's easier to get distracted with so many things. Just the desire for other things. The cares of this life. They just start weighing on you. And that which used to come with ease in pursuing the Lord now comes with much effort because of the weight of the world. Here he says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. You know, we can often just read that quickly. Yeah, the word of the Lord came to the prophet. But did you know, in Isaiah 50, talking about us in verse 4, Jesus, our example, says, The Lord God has awakened me morning by morning. He quickened my ear to hear that I might have a word to sustain the weary in the day. Do you know it's God's will for every day, the word of the Lord to come to you? Maybe you can remember back a few months. Maybe for some of you it has to go back a few years. 
For some of you, it may have to be a decade or two to go back to that place where you used to sit with the Bible open and just God would fill your heart. And as he filled your heart, it was like your cup overflowed and you just splashed on the world around you and you found yourself refreshing the weary in the day because of that which God had filled your heart so much. It says the word of the Lord came from the Lord of hosts. One of the indicators I always have when I witness to people, they say, I believe in God. Always one of, sort of an indicator, sort of a red flag. You believe in God? It's like the guy who's married saying, I've got a wife. You know, it's just not a very endearing term. He doesn't say, I got a word from God. He says, I got a word from the Lord of hosts. Maybe that's it. You're, you're at that place. It's been a long time when you've been able to listen to the word. It's been a long time since you've had that heart of worship. Oh, he's the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Oh, he's the precious, my precious Jesus. Oh man, I've just been in the presence of the Lord of hosts and he spoke to me. It says in Colossians that let the word of God richly dwell in your hearts. And as the word of God is dwelling in your heart richly, then all of a sudden you begin to speak in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because of the melody that's going on inside your heart. From the word of God just richly saturated in you, it just comes out in poetry. It comes out in song. It comes out in worship. You remember that place of first love? Do you remember that heart? The Lord remembers it and he says, oh, let's get back to there. Let's get back to that place. Return back unto me. In the book of Revelation of the church of Ephesus, he says, just start doing the works that you did at the beginning. Just start doing it. And as you start doing it, you'll find your heart catching back up. There was a lady who called the talk show host and she says, man, my husband has been a bum. I'm going to divorce him, but it's not good enough. I need to do something more than divorce him. Any ideas? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, here's what you can do. Get all dressed up in your nicest outfit. Spend the day cooking his favorite meal. When he walks in the door, give him a big hug, hand him the newspaper, set him down in the lazy boy recliner and bring him his favorite meal. Do that every day for two, three, four weeks. And finally, after a few weeks of this, instead of handing him the newspaper, hand him the divorce papers and tell him I'm divorcing you and now you know what you're missing out on. So in a few weeks, he actually called her back and said, hey, how did it work out? Did you divorce him? She said, divorce him? Are you crazy? We're madly in love. And that's exactly what he thought would happen. When you go back, just doing those things, you find your heart changing. And as you begin to kill them with kindness, <laughs> as you begin to, begin to smother them with love, they begin to break in their hard hearts. And then so in the same way, just start, remember where you've fallen. Start doing those things. Maybe you used to get on your knees but now you're such a mature Christian, you know, getting on your knees is not necessary for a deep communion with God. Get back on your knees. You used to sacrificially get up in the morning and be tired half of the day because you got up so early. 
Then you realized, oh, I can still have great communion with God and 10 minutes at lunch hour, you know. I, I don't have to get back seeking the Lord early once again. Depart from those evil ways. Depart from those evil doings. You say, well, what do you mean, evil? I ministered out in the prison for four years, and it was, it was hard to find a guilty, evil person out there because they always compared themselves to the worst guy. Hey, I just killed a couple people. It's not like I'm a serial killer like that guy. Hey, I may have made drugs and sold them, but I never sold it to anybody under 12 years old, like a lot of those bums. They, they always make themselves, no matter how evil they've been, they're always a notch better than somebody, so therefore they're not evil. The reality is, is we don't want to compare ourselves with the world. We want to compare ourselves to where God had brought us. Maybe for you it's evil that you're now only hearing the word of God preached once a week when you used to, back in your first love, used to go three times a week to hear a sermon. Three times a week you used to gather together with the brethren. And it's evil for you that you're not. Maybe you used to be on the front row and just hands lifted up in a place of worship and now you're not there anymore. And now you don't lift your hands in worship. That's evil. Oh, it's not evil compared to the world. The world's going, oh man, I go to church once a year. You're, ooh, you're holy, the fact that you go once a week. But we're not going to compare ourselves with the world. We need to compare ourselves where the Lord had brought us and where you are is evil. It's backslidden. It's not where God has you to be. And you need to repent of your evil ways, of your evil doings, that God might heal you. And so he says, look at your fathers. Where are they now? You've got to understand, in the Jewish culture, to be able to honor the dead is huge. It is in most cultures to a degree, but in the Jewish culture in particular, to be able to go to the grave site and put flowers and to remember them and to honor them all the way back as far as they can go, the graveyard was very important, and especially for the dignitaries like the prophets or the kings to build giant shrines to go there to, to honor them in, in a great memory. We do that in our country. You go to Washington or Lincoln's or JFK's you know, graveside, and, and it's a special thing to do. Even to this day, people will go to Arlington Cemetery to go out of their way to see the graves of great men. But yet he says, where are your fathers? Their bones are scattered throughout the four corners of the world. Where are the prophets? They, they ended up being a, a ditch digger off in Egypt somewhere. They, they have no honor. They have, their, their burial place has no place of honor. Those Jewish graves will be covered over by the pagans. They're going to be a, not even remembered. Look at, look at what they've done. They put you in this precarious position. They put themselves in a place of dishonor. And they woke up and they realized, man, everything God said is true. I wish I had repented. Why often does it take somebody just to get smacked upside the head before they finally go, whoa, I think I should change my ways? Why does it have to be that way? People often are waiting for God to make the next move. Well, I'm waiting for God to smack me upside the head. You don't need to wait for that. The ball's in your court now. Just return. God is saying, return back now unto me. 
In James 4, he says, draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. Why? He's already drawn near to you. It's your turn to draw and then he'll draw a little more. But then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now again, in the context, he's not saying, you bunch of sinners, get your act right. He's not saying that. He's saying, why are you having a hard time drawing back unto me? Because of sin. And as long as that's in your life, you're not going to be able to draw near. Jesus said that a man can't have a love for God in the things of this world. It can't happen. He's going to love the one, but eventually hate the other. He's going to cling to the one, but eventually despise the other. You can't have a love for both of them. You can't say, I'm going to have a love for the world, and at the same time, I'm going to have a love for the things of God. Aren't we all palsies? It's not going to work that way. They're contradictory. You're not going to be able to say, I'm going to go fill up the lust of my flesh, and at the same time, I'm going to be this radical worshiper of God. It cannot happen. You've got to let go of the sins and of weights. Maybe they're not sins, but it's a weight to you. And the reason you can't draw near to God, because you're double-minded. You've got this weight, and, and, and it's causing you to say, Man, I, I want to get in the Word, but I've got this thing over here. You need to put away your childish things. That, that's childishness. Guys, heaven is real. The things of God are true. Everything God says in His Word is absolutely 100% accurate. You can trust in it. And God is not trying to bind you up. He's trying to free you up. God doesn't say you can have sex with only one person outside of that. It's sin. Boy, isn't God a killjoy? Making me focus on one person like that. And that's all I can focus on is one person. It's not what I feel. My flesh feels like it could have sex with ten different people and be happier. Well, you know what? I agree. Your flesh probably does feel that. Because it's sold under sin and to bondage. But if you start trying to fill up your flesh and go have sex with ten different people, you will be in bondage. You may be free for 30 seconds, but you're going to be in bondage for a lifetime. The reality is, is God, by telling you, hey, it's a sin to do anything other than focus on that one person, he's freeing you up. And if you'll let go of that, just say that sin, I'm not going to think about that, I'm not going to be a part of that, I'm not going to let my mind go there, I'm just going to focus on this one person, you will find yourself free and happy because you're released. You, you just said it's not a possibility and you're free. You're double-minded. You're, you're embracing sin. So you can't scoot over and just say, it's all about you, Jesus. My life is filled up in Jesus. That's the reason. Return into me, you can't. Sin is clotting the drain. It's keeping you from getting to that place you need to be. Like Samson, Delilah stroking your hair and you're falling asleep. Got one eye open now. Oh man, I'm trying to stay awake. Okay, I need to be a worshiper. Why can't I worship? Oh man, I need to hear from God. Oh, I'm desperate. My heart's hurting, but oh, I can't. I can't hear from God. What's going on? Well, eventually that deep sleep is going to become a sleep where you can't even sense what the devil's doing anymore. And all of a sudden you're going to need to have spiritual strength. All of a sudden you need to have spiritual insight. All of a sudden you need a reality of God in your life and you're going to wake up as every time before, but you're going to find yourself nothing. Backsliding is not like a blowout on a tire. All of a sudden, poof, oh man, how did that happen? 
yesterday I was on fire for the Lord and everything was great, and today I'm not. What happened? It's not that way. It's a slow leak. It's a little pinhole. And you know things aren't driving along as smooth as they used to. And you looked at it a few times going, ah, it looks like it's getting flatter, but ah, it's okay. It, it's, it's been getting down there a long time. You've been running, and those tires have been way low for a long time. And, but there is that day you wake up, and it is completely flat. It says when Samson woke up that he did not, he had no spiritual perception of how far away he was from God. The Lord had departed, and he didn't even know it. All was lost, blinded, binded, and grinded. His life was destroyed. And the reality is, is it didn't have to happen. God had been saying to Samson all along, return unto me. Return back unto me. And God is saying that to you today. You know, a lot of people, I think, get confused because they they focus on one part of the truth rather than on the, the whole truth. For example, look with me to Romans, if you would. To Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, look there at verse 1. You guys know this passage well, most of you. It says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And a lot of people say, that's all I need to hear. That's a great point to close on, Brian. Amen. I've heard it. That's all I need to hear. I'm at peace. And you know, that's absolutely true. I'm a believer, and I feel no condemnation from God whatsoever. I know he loves me. I know he's for me. I know if I fall 700,000 times, he's going to pick me up 700,000 times. I know that where my sin abounds, his grace is going to abound more. I know he's for me. But notice on down in verse 5, just a a few verses down. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now listen to verse 6. For to be carnally minded, be earthly minded, be fleshly minded is death. That's a strong word. And if you take that word into context from Romans chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, you realize it's talking about a separation from God. That life after the flesh kills you spiritually. But to be spiritually minded is life in peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. You are at war with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Notice, when you're in the flesh, there's death. There's no life. There's no peace. And there's no pleasing of God. And then on in Romans chapter 12. What do you need to do there? Paul says, so I beg you. I beseech you, I beg you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let your life go back to the sins as you did in your bondage. But be transformed. Fight it, guys. Swim upstream. Get rid of those things. Fight it to the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Yes, there's no condemnation, but also a life in the flesh. It's like there's a tension. If you were to take a, a guitar and you were to put the string on one end and just leave it dangling in the air 
and you hit that string, what's going to happen? <laughs> Nothing. But if you take the other end of that string and you tie it off and you start putting pressure on it and more and more pressure, all of a sudden you can get that string in tune. It's the tension of the two. Well, Brian, how do you put that together? There's no condemnation. God's for us. Where our sin abounds, there's grace much more abounds. And at the same time, <laughs> I'm dead and there's no life and, and I'm displeasing to God when I live a life after the flesh. But isn't there no condemnation? Yeah. How do you put those together? I can't. I've got to just leave them at separate ends. Doesn't that cause tension? Exactly. It does. And I find myself with that tension staying on that narrow road that leads to life. I know God's for me, but at the same time, I know I'm a free will individual. And I know that free will can take me right into death. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, encourage one another daily. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin can harden the heart and cause one to depart from the living God. I realize that in me is a complete ability to choose even to the point, even now, to depart from the living God. This is why it says in Peter to not be conformed to the world but he says to walk in fear while on planet earth. Why? To be holy as God is holy. And so there's that sense of, I know God is for me, but at the same time I realize my flesh is against me and I need to fight the fight. I need to beat my body into subjection. Look at another one of these in First Peter. Look over there if you would. In First Peter, way back in the New Testament, Some of you guys cold? We can turn on the heater. Anybody need the heater on? Getting a little hot in here, huh? Hopefully for a couple different reasons. Anyway, First Peter chapter 1. Here's some beautiful verses here in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, 4. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last times. Boy, what a glorious verse. A verse of security. Your, he, your salvation is reserved in heaven. It's locked up in the vault in heaven. And guess who the security guard is? God. Boy, that's a pretty secure position to be in, isn't it? But look on down into verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Set your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. There is a sober reality that I am a flesh, and my flesh did not get saved. I got saved, but my flesh is still sold under sin into bondage. And I realized that I could go right back to the sins that I left when I got born again, but I could go back to that same bondage life. And that if I am not being sober and focusing my life to be holy as God is holy and to realize why I'm on planet Earth, I am not in a safe place. The world's against me. The devil's against me. My own flesh is against me. And if I don't realize that, 
man, but he just set us free in verse 3, 4, and 5, saying, hey, it's reserved in heaven, secured by God himself. But then on this other hand, he said, wake up, be sober, fight the fight, man. Live, in, live on fear. He just set me free. I had no fear in verse 3 through 5, but now he tells me to have fear down in verse 13 through 15. What's going on there? I, I, don't, I can't put them together. But I find it continually through the scriptures. But I find it's that tension that causes me to, to walk on that narrow road. Look on there in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says there in verse 17, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, listen to that, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to the faithful creator. So now he says, in in the first chapter of Peter, he says, man, it's in heaven, it's guarded by God. And now in chapter 4, he says, if the righteous are scarcely saved. Well, it all depends on what perspective, if you're looking from the heavenly perspective or the earthly perspective. But he's letting us know where the rubber meets the road, that we are fighting the fight. What did Paul say in 2 Timothy 4? He said, I fought the fight started a bunch of churches, led thousands of people to the Lord. No, what did Paul say? I fought the fight and what? I kept the faith. (laughs) It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a great battle. Don't give up in the battle. Man, there's so many of these to look at. Look to 2 Timothy, if you would, and we're going to have to close up here quickly. But look at 2 Timothy. Look there at chapter 1. There in verse 9. It says, who has saved us and called us with this holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Oh, salvation's a beautiful thing, isn't it? God chose me. God called me. God saved me before the foundations of the world. What a beautiful heavenly picture. But then look on down in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Say, oh man, I love that verse. Because <laughs> I often find myself weak and, and struggling and, and not being the person I should be. And, and when I'm faithless, I know that he still remains in his own nature faithful to me. And that's true. But look back at verse 11. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. And if we deny him, what? He also will deny us. Radical. You've got to look at the whole picture. And then look at chapter 2, verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, and avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. 
And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul here is talking about previously people who walked with the Lord. And he's saying these people that perhaps if we talk to them in love and gentleness and sharing the word with them and try to teach them through it, that perhaps they can escape that snare that the devil has them in right now and sets them free from that captivity. We find in Galatians that Paul says, I fear for you because you so quickly have left the truth unto heresy. Yes, we need to beware Hebrews 3.12 says, Lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so I know the faithfulness of God. But I also know that along the way he realizes our weakness, our sinfulness. And so he puts these passages like he does in Zechariah to say, Hey, if any of you are drifting away, wake up. You need to get back where you need to be. Did you see about that on July 4th, just a couple of days ago, over in La Jolla, the 16-year-old boy who was boogie boarding? All of a sudden, he gets caught in a riptide, and the next thing he knows, he's out in the deep. And for some reason, he unleashed himself from his boogie board. And then they found him, 30 minutes later, drifted far north. What happened? He was out there just cruising along, having a good time, and all of a sudden he opened his eyes and he said, Oh, I'm out in the middle of the ocean. Look at shore. And he started kicking and paddling, and, and he's not getting anywhere. He's farther away still. And, and he thought, Man, this boogie board's holding me back from how fast I can really swim. If I get myself rid of this boogie board, man, I could really swim towards shore, and with all my body I could make it. The very thing that would have saved him. And his thinking was the very thing he released himself from. And they found him drowned and he died. There's some of you that used to cling to the word, used to cling to worship, used to love the gathering together of the saints. And now it's like, man, this is the thing that's weighing me down. This is the thing that's holding me back. And you're letting go of that safety harness. You're letting go of that boogie board. And it's only gonna, you're only going to go farther out. It wasn't the boogie board that got you out there. It's the riptide of your flesh. It's the riptide of the fiery darts of the devil. He's pulling you back. I feel myself far from God. I feel far from my wife. I have left my first love with both. It's been a long process in coming. It feels like like it may take more than a moment to get back. He called a week later. He said, man, for the first time, I've been able to, small step, I don't want to say things are healed, but I'm heading back in that direction. I had a great time of worship, and I had a precious time in the Word. And I said, yeah, the Bible says, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another, and you'll be healed. You humbled yourself in that letter, and, and I prayed for you. And God's touching your life. I need his grace, his enabling grace. I need his wisdom, the kind that the, James says, that fr- kind from above. The cares of this life are choking me. I have no desire to worship, a great desire for comfort and ease and sin. 
I'm distracted. I'm not hearing much from the Lord myself. All this above troubles me. Maybe you could write your name under that letter. That's word for word where I'm at today. God knows. And what are his words? Return. He writes to the church of Laodicea, you think things are going well. They're not. You're naked. You're, you're wretched. You're poor. You need to repent and do it quickly. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. We often say that's for sinners coming to Christ. It's not. It's the Lord talking to his bride. It's the Lord talking to the church saying, you've kicked me out of the house. You didn't realize it, but I had to leave. And I'm wanting to come back in. The Lord's not going to open that door. You have to open that door now. He's not going to kick it open. He's not going to crawl through the window. He's not going to open the door and stick his head in saying, do you mind if I come in? It's a very formal thing. It's a thing you need to do. You need to open that door and say, God, I come today. I repent. I come back. And the Lord wants to heal you. Let's all bow our heads this morning. Lord, we thank you of your great love for us. We thank you for the great joy you have in us. We know that right now, even, even as the prodigal son was heading down the road and the father ran out to meet him, so as we've taken that first little baby step heading back towards you, you're sprinting towards us even now. We don't sense condemnation. Maybe we would have responded better had we sensed a little bit. But we know that's just not your nature. You're not going to condemn us. You're not going to be the heavy one. You're just very politely standing outside the door of our hearts with a very gentle heart, with a very gentle but subtle knock, saying, I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. Just scoot right on back over next to me, honey. I want you. I desire you. How I want that beautiful fellowship and worship. Lord, as we read that last part of Haggai, after this prophecy of Zechariah, what a beautiful promise where he says, now in the ninth month, on this 24th day, if you will repent, all of these curses will be turned around to a blessing. God is saying to some of you right now, on this, seventh, this sixth day of July, today, if you'll repent, if you'll consider your ways, he says in Haggai, if I will not turn all those cursings back into a blessing, the time is coming, I'm going to shake the heavens, and I'm going to shake the earth. I'm going to overthrow kingdoms, and I'm going to overthrow the Gentiles and the, the people of this world. But you, I have chosen you, and I will make you as a signet ring, says the Lord of hosts. If you'll consider your ways today, God will not only bring you back into himself, but he'll make you royalty. He'll put his ring upon your finger and your ro his robe upon you to be a special child. There's been a slow leak. <laughs> things are just about flat. And God's saying it's time to get things aired back up. Let's get back where we need to be. We know. Turn from your evil ways. Turn from your evil doings. God's giving you so much light. You need to respond to that light today. What we're going to do in these next few minutes, we're going to sing a couple of songs, and this is your time. You and God, nobody else here, but you and God, draw near to him, that he may draw near to you. Open that door right now and let him in. Slide on back over, return to the Lord.